Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton and this is Geopolitical Economy Report. Today I have a real pleasure of being joined by the Ecuadorian economist and politician Andres Arauz. He was the former Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent in the government of Rafael Correa in Ecuador. He was also a former uh, General Director of Ecuador's Central Bank and he is brilliant when it comes to understanding new forms of finance, new economic alternatives. He's been a longtime critic of the International Monetary Fund. He has discussed a lot the importance of building a new currency and system in the region and also discussed central bank digital currencies. So that's exactly where we're going to be speaking about today. Now, there was also recently a regional election in Ecuador and the leftist Correista movement swept the elections and won um, more than any other party. They won um, in the, the southernmost uh, populous regions, and they also won the, the mayorships of the, the major cities of Quito and Guayaquil. So we, were, we are going to talk about the election, but I want to begin, Andres, speaking about the discussion of creating a new currency in Latin America for bilateral trade. There has been a lot of debate about this, especially in the financial press. We've seen economists from the IMF have denounced it as a crazy idea. But this is not necessarily a new idea. You yourself um, were involved in a previous attempt at creating a unit of account in Latin America for international trade, which was called the Sucre. And I do want to ask you about that in a moment. But I'm wondering if you can discuss this meeting that was held this January between the Brazilian president, uh, Lula da Silva, and Argentine president, Alberto Fernandes. And in that meeting, uh, Lula said that they are beginning the process of research to create a new currency, which he has tentatively referred to as the Sur. There are a lot of questions about this. I know it's in the early stage. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. You yourself have, have been promoting this idea for a long time. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, the, the Sur is, uh, is an idea that has been in the minds of uh, Latin American economists for decades. Uh, we have a lot of hist historical precedents. In the 80s, there was an initiative called the UMLA, Unidad Monetaria Latinoamericana, within the ALADI, which is the Latin American Integration Association, uh, so that uh, central banks could have this common currency and they could uh, make transfers, international transfers amongst the different countries of the region uh, without having to do it uh, recurring to the dollar or the U.S. financial system. Uh, then, uh, you know, we had the, the, the Sucre initiative uh, in among the ABA countries that work, that is operational right now. We also had... Um, the the case of uh, the peso andino for the andean countries that likewise was created in the 70s early 80s and, and now uh, we're discussing the the sur uh, some of the the critics have incorrectly uh, basically called it a, a unique currency or a currency that will replace uh, national currencies and that is not so uh, the idea is not to replace uh, each country's national sovereign, uh, sovereign currency, but rather to have an additional currency, a complementary currency, a, a supranational currency for trade uh, among 
countries in the region, starting with uh, Brazil and Argentina, that are the sort of two powerhouses in the southern cone, and that could then amplify to, to the rest of the region. Now, that's a very important concept because uh, people tend to compare this to the euro, uh, and, uh, and, and the euro had a very long process of, of getting there, uh, but the euro is actually in every person's uh, physical wallet. In our case, we're not talking about replacing national currencies. We're not talking about, you know, convergence criteria and fiscal uh, convergence like the Maastricht Treaty, imposing austerity and debt limits to each country. No, that is uh, not the case of, of our proposal. It starts from the banking sector, from the functioning of the international payment system dynamics, uh, very much in the spirit of Keynes' uh, Bancor. Uh, now, I think uh, that translated to the 21st century means that the, the SUR, this, this common additional currency for trade and transactions within the region, have to have uh, a, a financial innovation incorporated in the design uh, so that, for example, we don't have to use uh, banks in Miami or in, in New York just to transfer... Uh, uh, you know, funds between Chile and Uruguay or Argentina and Colombia. Uh, right now, what happens is that, you know, when, when a transaction from either of these uh, countries has to take place, they have to first find what's called a correspondent bank in the United States, usually a bank in Miami or in New York City, uh, where the money uh, flows. Now, that's not only inefficient in it, energy terms and information terms, but it, it is also much slower because uh, by having to go through the U.S. financial system it has to comply with the uh, United States uh, uh, sort of know your customer, anti-money laundering, combating financial terrorism laws and regulations, and, and that's in principle okay, but they take a long time to process. And, you know, if you think about it, if it's a transaction between... Uh, Two countries within Latin America, why would they have to comply with U.S. regulations to begin with? You know, it could be a regional financial arrangement that could make transfers in real time, what's called real-time gross settlement of these transactions, you could have this uh, immediately available, and you could make trade much faster, and could be a way of promoting regional economic integration, especially for small and medium enterprises. They usually have to wait, you know, five or six days for a transaction to finally settle. So this is a, an opportunity for the Latin American small businesses as well. And uh, hopefully it can be deployed uh, in, in a very quick manner. Uh, you know, this has been discussed in, in theory and practice for decades. So it really shouldn't be a challenge to, to get this uh, going forward fairly quickly. Yeah, well, thank you for describing that. And you mentioned something very important, Andres, which is the Bancor. This was the proposal that John Maynard Keynes had made back at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, in which the U.S. dollar was established as the global reserve currency. This is an international unit of account, so each country could still maintain its own sovereign monetary policy. And, and I'm glad that you stressed that this is not based on the Eurozone model, where a country that has a current account deficit like Greece is just going to constantly be trapped in debt, whereas countries that have current account surpluses like Germany, which export so much, they maintain this kind of economic hegemony. Um, 
I want to talk about what happened with the Sucre. You mentioned that the Sucre technically is still, uh, it's still possible to use this currency. Um, a lot of people associate the Sucre with former Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez, who had been a huge promoter, but it was actually under Rafael Correa in Ecuador, in whose government that you served, that used the Sucre more than any other country in the region. This is a graph showing the volume of trade, at least uh, converted to U.S. dollars, uh, of the, the use of the Sucre in bilateral trade in Latin America from 2010 until 2016. And Ecuador was responsible for the vast majority of the transactions. Now, we do know that there were political reasons for that. After uh, Correa left power in 2017, we saw that he was betrayed by his former vice president, Lenny Moreno, who basically did a kind of internal coup. But I'm wondering if you can discuss your experience with the Sucre. I believe you were involved in helping to develop it. What, what lessons you have learned from it? And if you think that it's something that could be brought back in the future, or if the sword is going to kind of replace it, or in general, if you can reflect on the experience of the Sucre. The Sucre is like building uh, an extra highway for uh, financial transactions, right? So you have the conventional financial system that uh, by default requires that a US correspondent bank intermediate financial transactions. And that your correspondent bank is usually based either in Miami, for the case of American countries, or New York City if it's a, a larger distance. You know, for example, a transaction between uh, the South American, uh, any South American country, and uh, for example, an East Asian country. Right? It usually requires a correspondent bank account, and and a common correspondent bank account, and that's very hard to find. So. They have to call their bankers and they say, hey, do you have any relationship with a bank in, you know, East Asia? And they say, no, I don't. Let me call my bankers bankers. And then they make successive calls until they find that they both share an account at the Federal Reserve, for example, right? Or a big bank like JP Morgan. And so then these banks, which are in fact grouped in these large global, global private commercial banks that intermediate financial transactions, are grouped into uh, an organization called the Wolfsburg Group, okay? This Wolfsburg Group is the group of the 13 largest international banks. Uh, they settle most of uh, international trade in the world. And they are all private banks, right? And they have their own standards, their own principles, and their own logic as to how they work. Of course, they want to make money. But then they also follow their countries of origin, sort of rules and regulations, which are hegemonic in nature, neo-colonial in nature as well, and uh, are not designed for the interest of the sort of peripheral countries or marginal users uh, of these transactional systems. So in the case of the Sucre, it's a highway, it's a platform that connects the central banks of each of the countries, of the Alba countries, with the domestic uh, commercial banks where people have their accounts and then the central banks are connected amongst themselves with the Sucre platform, which is really, you know, a piece of software, a messaging protocol, which allows uh, uh, central banks to talk to each other and to uh, pay each other in, in Sucres. Sucres is the unit of account of the system, uh, of this platform system. 
and uh, and like I said, it's fully operational um, in in technical terms. I mean, anybody can do transactions if they want to, but politically, when Lenin Moreno came to power in Ecuador, he decided to stop sending the Ecuadorian delegates to the uh, monthly and, and yearly uh, sort of uh, meetings that the, the Sucre Council uh, had where they would discuss, you know, the, the technical uh, operation you know, workings of, of the system. And so after Ecuador stopped sending the delegates, uh, you know, some, some of the issues uh, on the technical workings of the, the Sucre started to sort of be on pause and on hold. And until now, they're uh, like that. It's, so it was a, a political manipulation of the process to, to make it uh, slow at first and then to, to completely halt. Uh, however, the, 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 the software itself, the, uh, the technical design and the possibility to, to make transactions uh, could be easily retaken if there is just enough political will to, to bring it back to, to life. Uh, the Sur, and the Sur also has other precedents in, in the southern cone of South America, which was the SML, Sistema de Pagos en Monedas Locales, or Local Currency uh, Payment System, that uh, within the Mercosur was developed by first, again, Argentina, and adopted by Uruguay and Paraguay as well, which allows uh, exporters to invoice their sales in local currency to get paid in local currency with uh, transactions within Mercosur countries as if they were domestic transactions. Uh, but then the central banks settle at the end of day at the New York Fed. So again, they have to go to these uh, uh, sort of correspondent banking network design where uh, the New York Fed has a, a protagonism. So uh, it, it won't be hard to sort of merge these initiatives uh, and to have the, the sur come out of that. It is not necessarily to to have a you know physical or legal merge of, of the uh, these two uh, instruments. It is enough of having a conceptual merge, right? We have the ideas from one, the ideas from other. We can easily design something new that uh, takes uh, the best from from all of these uh, designs and historical precedents that that we do have in the region. That's why I trust that it can be deployed fairly quickly. Um, I followed uh, the, the President Lula and President Fernandez uh, announcement. Uh, again, it was announced as an initial research phase. Uh, I have been involved in, in the working group for the SUR uh, with uh, some people from the Ministry of Finance of, of Brazil. And, uh, and I think uh, we can really go forward uh, fairly quickly. Uh, but again, the, our challenge here is not technical in nature. Uh, we know how to solve all these issues. We have the experiences. We have uh, the concrete, uh, tangible uh, experience. What we need is to uh, present a system uh, that will be uh, supported by our local productive sectors so that it can be sustained, so it can be sustainable in time and not be just subject to you know, a political backlash or, a, uh, you know, flip-flopping like we've seen in, in, in the case of the Sucre or in other initiatives in, in the region. We need to make this long-lasting, and for that to work, we need the 
productive sectors, small and medium enterprises, uh, businesses actually use the, the, the platform and the mechanism. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Andres, because I was going to ask you about the politics of this. I understand that it can be hard to provide a simple answer to this, but um, I, I would I should say that I want to apologize a little bit to you because I know I landed you in some uh, hot water in Ecuador. I wrote an article um, and after uh, Brazil, after uh, Lula won the presidential election in October, you published an excellent, an excellent article in Spanish explaining your new plan for regional financial architecture. And I translated into English and was promoting it. And I saw that the, the Ecuadorian right wing was very angry because they said that you were planning on ending the uh, dollar as the Ecuadorian currency. Of course, people might know that in Ecuador, the dollar has been the national currency ever since the 1999 banking crash that was actually overseen by former economic minister Guillermo Lasso, who is the multimillionaire banker who is now the president. Um, so I, I'm sorry for uh, for leading the right wing to attack you, even though that's not what you proposed, is you didn't propose changing the national currency of Ecuador. And they're obviously misinterpreting what you wrote. But what you did write in that article, an important point is that you have that Latin America, at least South America at this moment, has a narrow window of time because at the end of 2023, there are going to be presidential elections in Argentina. And if the right wing comes to power, and especially if someone who's very extreme, like perhaps Javier Milei, who is this, you know, uh, libertarian right wing, you know, Koch brother kind of figure in Latin America, I highly doubt that he would be willing to continue with this process of economic regional integration and the creation of, you know, a, a unit of account for trade between countries in the region. How can a system, again, I know I, this is not an easy question to answer, but how can such a system like this be created so if a Bolsonaro or a Milay or a Lenin Moreno comes to power, they can't just sabotage it like they have done in the past? Yeah, it really is a challenge, but we know the answer. You know, the answer is to have, uh, you know, to surpass the point of no return, and to, to do that, you know, you first have to overcome uh, the theoretical discussion, right? It can't just be an idea floating around. It has to <laughs> try to become either at least a treaty, a law, uh, uh, some regulation of some sort that that can can exist. Reality, not just a, an academic proposal. So, the first step is to do that. Then, of course, we need to go beyond just having it on paper. Uh, we need to have users of the system that can then become the incumbent defenders of the system, of the new system, of the alternative system. So, that is why we need to go extremely quickly. And this is what uh, really bothers me. Because some, sometimes, you know, the heads of state uh, make these grand announcements, which are huge in terms of their implications. Uh, but then the, uh, our bureaucracies, Latin American bureaucracies, and especially the foreign ministries, uh, do not move as, at the same pace that the presidents are going, right? They, they, they go, uh, you know, very slowly and, you know, with all these bureaucratic messes and they, they're still sending, you know, physical snail mail to to exchange letters and you know have to send a letter to the embassy 
sort of ignoring that we live in the 21st century, that you have email, that you have WhatsApp, that you can send an instant message, and that you can uh, actually, uh, you know, make decisions quickly uh, and and go forward quickly as well, uh, where you have, you know, a huge pool of, of talent available anywhere in the world, and, and you can have meetings via video calls. But somehow, this does not uh, work in, in the case of, Latin American uh, government bureaucracies, foreign ministries, where we have to uh, go really quickly. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a technical person. I know my stuff, but I'm also active in politics, and and uh, I immediately recognize that we do have a narrow window. I mean, uh, we have no time to lose, and so we need to create a, a, a chat group among the presidents. And have them make decisions uh, quickly, you know, via their cell phones. This is how things get done nowadays in the in the corporate world and big firms and, and large initiatives. Uh, this is how we have to move. We have to move forward quickly, and uh, and it is a, a bit frustrating that that the the speed uh, uh, at which uh, the, the bureaucracies are moving uh, it does not match. The historic moment that we have in Latin America, with you know basically all of the major economies, all of the major uh, countries having progressive governments. I mean, this is not an opportunity to waste. And then, of course, once we get this done, once we get this operational going, we have to empower our citizens. We have to empower our domestic productive sectors, our small and medium enterprises, our cooperatives, our association of producers so that they can get the most out of these new mechanisms. Uh, they can trade amongst themselves. We have to build networks. We have to set the infrastructure in motion quickly so that the new uh, opportunities for uh, trade among our countries uh, can be concrete, tangible, and effective. And, and that is a challenge for, for, for us. I wish we could uh, build, you know, as quickly as the Chinese are building the new rail infrastructure, for example. That's something that we need in South America and that can be done as well, also quite quickly and have profound transformational impact uh, within the region. And then there are other things that are even uh, more powerful and that can be done extremely quickly uh, and that are very important to keep the, the, the motion and the momentum for regional integration going, which is, for example, setting up a scholarship fund, a small scholarship fund, but for what we call educational exchange between high schools and also universities of the countries in the region, so that you could do a semester or a year abroad. And, and you know, when, when a student leaves to another country, for example, from Peru goes to Uruguay, and then the, the empty spot left in, in Peru can be filled by a person from Bolivia or from Ecuador. And then you have basically a clearing system of educational exchange that does not need to cost more money for uh, the, our, our governments. So with, with very little money, basically paying for tickets, uh, you could get this in energy of regional integration going, especially among the youth, which a young continent like Latin America uh, is the, the engine uh, for the present and the future. Yeah, I should mention to people that Andres was a leading presidential candidate in 2021. He won the first round of the election and came close to winning the second. And 
it's very refreshing to hear all of these very creative ideas from someone who could potentially be president someday. Um, Andres, you, you talked about the, the importance of speed in this moment. Um, I do have to say that Lula made a comment in his meeting with Alberto Fernandez that gave me a little concern when he said that there are going to be many debates and many meetings in the plan to create this. And it does make me a little worried that, that they, they may have, um, they might not be expediting the process very rapidly. But what I will say is um, Lula made another very interesting comment that I wanted to ask you about. When he was, when a journalist posed this question about the currency, Lula mentioned that the BRICS system is also working on creating an international reserve currency. And from what we've seen thus far, it's going to potentially be based on a basket of currencies of the five members, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, using their currencies. And potentially also, it, there may be the use of um, commodities like oil. So I'm curious, now that the BRICS is developing its own international financial architecture, potential reserve currency, and Argentina has applied to join the BRICS. China invited Argentina to virtually assist, uh, virtually attend the two meetings of the BRICS last year. And Iran, Algeria, Egypt has expressed interest, Indonesia. I'm curious if you think that now that we're seeing another international financial architecture being created through the BRICS system, if in Latin America, the financial architecture could potentially be connected if you could collaborate and potentially if you can even see a country like Ecuador um, collaborating with BRICS or potentially joining BRICS? Uh, I think it would be, uh, of course, interesting to have Ecuador join BRICS. I think that's a very uh, distant possibility for different reasons. Right now, Lasso is uh, completely a right-wing ideological monster and is not even interested in anything uh, counter-hegemonic. It doesn't even believe in regional integration and, and of course, challenging uh, their unipolar system is out of question in, in the case of Lasso. But then also Ecuador is a fairly small country, uh, although its uh, human talent, I think, outweighs its, its uh, natural uh, size. But um, uh, I think uh, right now what is key is to, to have the, the five BRICS countries, the core members, actually uh, get something done. The new development bank uh, uh, halted uh, some of its operations in the pandemic. And then uh, uh, more recently as well, I think Lula uh, nails it uh, correctly. You know, when, when he has proposed uh, Dilma Rousseff to, to go to China and to lead the BRICS bank, it's called New Development Bank. And hopefully it can do so without uh, you know, following the same sort of IMF, World Bank type logic or the same, you know, credit rating agency type logic and, and to create a new uh, markets, new ways of interacting with the global south. Uh, I think uh, the, the, the common unit of account is def definitely uh, something uh, that can be done again quickly. We have the experience of uh, setting up the, the South America, the, system for unitary compensation in the region, in the Sucre. Uh, there are other examples as well. This should not be a challenge. And hopefully uh, what's important there is to find a clearing and settlement bank that can uh, allow for these transactions to take place uh, that is not afraid of uh, sanctions from the United States, right? 
we need that type of, of bank that can uh, really uh, serve the, the global south and interests of the global south, and that can help uh, nations that are in desperate need in this 2023 where we're going to have a massive uh, debt crisis in the global south particularly many uh, latin american and african countries and hopefully the BRICS bank will be there to support uh, the global south with solidarity and not just uh, become one more creditor that you know <laughs> wants to join the paris club or whatever we, we need an alternative view and I really hope that President Dilma uh, will will bring that vision uh, to the to the BRICS Bank. Yeah, very well said. I, I think that is a very important decision to appoint Dilma as the head of the New Development Bank. Um, you mentioned an important word, the S word, sanctions, which I wanted to ask you about. We've seen that in the past few decades, the application of unilateral sanctions by the United States has skyrocketed. And of course, in the context of South America, we've seen that Venezuela is, uh, is suffering under a brutal embargo imposed by the U.S., many illegal unilateral sanctions. And of course, the central bank reserves and the gold reserves in particular of Venezuela were effectively stolen by the Bank of England. And that established a precedent that was then used by the U.S. to freeze the central bank reserves of Afghanistan which has fueled a, a horrible crisis in hyperinflation because they can't stabilize their currency in Afghanistan. And then of course, Russia, after Russia invaded Ukraine, the US and the EU froze 300 billion US dollars worth of the central bank reserves, the foreign exchange reserves of Russia. So clearly that has established a precedent that has frightened countries around the world. And it makes sense why countries are trying to find new reserve currencies and new payment mechanisms. The Prominent Credit Suisse economist, uh, Sultan Posar, has been talking a lot about this concept of Bretton Woods III. He argues that we're entering in this new kind of monetary era where Bretton Woods I from 1944 in the Bretton Woods Conference until 1971 or 73 when the U.S. dollar was delinked from gold was Bretton Woods I. And then we've been living through Bretton Woods II, but he argues that now we're moving into a kind of Bretton Woods III. I'm wondering if you agree with that argument and what role you see Latin America playing in kind of forging this path. I, I always sh shout at the top of my lungs, you know, people talk about Eurasian integration, but I think Latin American integration is just as important in challenging this financial hegemony and building a, a truly multipolar system. And I'm curious if you think that we are in this Bretton Woods three world and it, what role Latin America plays in that. Yeah, definitely. We are in the Spring Woods 3 world. Uh, this is a uh, obvious out of question. We've seen tectonic uh, you know, shifts in the functioning of the international monetary system. Uh, some are not detected until after a while, but <clears throat> those who follow this, uh, uh, you know, very, uh, those who follow this closely, um, <clears throat> I think we are in the capacity to to say that yeah we're living this uh, Britain was three moment there are many many conversations happening right now um i think right now we're still in a moment of what eileen grable calls uh productive incoherence in the sense that there are many ideas you, know, you have bigs you have your regions you have the latin american you have the sdrs you have the crypto movement you know, i mean there's all these different alternatives and ideas and, and, and for now, it's okay that it's sort of chaotic and there are many different initiatives. 
but <clears throat> this has to find uh, a, a reasonable path forward, which goes along a regional integration mechanisms and the connection among regional integration mechanisms. So you can have sort of a Eurasian hub, a Pan-African hub, a Latin American hub, and you know then you have connections among those those regions, and, and it's the the society of the 21st century uh, has to be a society of of blocks, right, of large geopolitical blocks uh, that can effectively allow for sort of planetary governance in, in more uh, balanced terms, uh, but also have uh, you know common positions, but then within those blocks you can have quite a bit of, of diversity. So <clears throat> I think that's how uh, it will end up working also in the monetary sphere. Uh, and we need the, these uh, sort of communicating uh, chambers or, 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 or layers uh, that would be the, the supra block or the supranational mechanisms, you know, like the BRICS Bank, but also the SDR uh, at the International Monetary Fund and, and other such initiatives. So we're definitely moving this, uh, living this mo moment of, of creativity. And, uh, and I think it's, it's important to, to get these things rolling, you know, so we have to go from, from talking about them to actually uh, setting them in motion and then testing uh, which initiatives are, are, are most successful. Now, all this has to be done in the context of geopolitical confrontation and the weaponization of the uh, incumbent financial system, which is the dollar-based, U.S. financial system-based, correspondent banking and uh, sort of uh, FATF-governed uh, U.S. hegemonic financial system. And, um, <clears throat> and that is uh, really both a, a, a cause for the major change, but also something that stifles that change because smaller countries, but also maybe banks that do not want to lose their incumbent position uh, are, are afraid of, of taking on this role of an alternative system because the, the US uh, 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 institutions, the OFAC, the Treasury, FinCEN, and their position in international multilateral organizations have really weaponized the financial system against any sort of this creativity. So uh, it will take a, a lot of courage, but also a lot of coordination so that things can be done uh, in a unilateral way, sort of opposing hegemony, but in a coordinated way, so that uh, not each individual country suffers the weight of the sanctions, but that we can do it in such a coordinated way that uh, you know we, we can all go forward without fear of, of retaliation from uh, uh, these, these institutions. So um, that's a, a real politic kind of thing. Uh, coming from a small country like Ecuador, it would be impossible for us, you know, Ecuador by itself, to try to promote something uh, that big so we have to trust on on the big players to uh, to to make the to take the first steps and, and to uh, make some long-lasting change and, and just the, because you mentioned sanctions i, I want to add another element which is not only the the gold that was taken from from venezuela and the asset freeze and and, and so on but there was a particular uh, type of, of sanction that has not been really described in the media with which is um, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which is a multilateral organization, but because the U.S. has veto and outsized influence in the governance of the fund, 
decided not to recognize the Venezuelan government. So neither uh, the Maduro official government nor the fake Guaido government, they said we have uncertainty as to whom we should recognize as their official government. And they blocked Venezuela's accounts at the IMF and uh, in, in de facto avoided or was an obstacle for Venezuela accessing its $5 billion worth of recently issued SDRs in 2021, which at the moment of the, the pandemic and given the, the economic uh, hardship that Venezuela was going through, would have been extremely useful uh, for uh, fighting the economic consequences of, of the pandemic and acquiring uh, vital health and medical equipment for, for the population. So uh, this is a new type of, of sanction uh, which is, is, is not explained anywhere. It's very difficult to pin down. But uh, up to this moment, even you know, two months after uh, Guaido uh, has been sort of removed from, from power and there is no question as to the legitimacy of President Maduro uh, of Venezuela, uh, the IMF has still not recognized the Venezuelan Central Bank and has still blocked the passwords to the Venezuela's account at the IMF where there is over $5 billion worth of SDRs. So bigger than what's in the UK with the gold, bigger than other asset seizures that Venezuela has gone through. Yeah, this is actually a perfect segue. I wanted to ask you about special drawing rights, SDRs. You've been a big advocate internationally for uh, expanding the use of SDRs. And, and in many ways, this is kind of an example of the, the Keynesian concept of the Bancor in practice. The problem, of course, with the SDRs, you can explain what they are, is that they are overseen by the IMF. And we know that the IMF is a deeply politicized institution that in which only the US has veto power. Of course, anyone who knows the basic history of the IMF knows it has a long history of trapping countries in the global south in, in debt and then forcing them to impose neoliberal structural adjustment programs, cutting the minimum wage, privatizing state assets, etc. And the, the IMF itself, its top economists admitted in a report called Neoliberalism Oversold, they admitted that those policies led to a decline in growth, led to increasing inequality, and unemployment and such. But um, it's we're in this complicated situation where the SDRs do propose um, an interesting opportunity for the Global South. But as you mentioned, I mean, um, also during the pandemic, Venezuela applied for an IMF loan, but also Iran, where no one contests who the real Iranian government is. The US used its veto power to block uh, the request that Iran made for five, a $5 billion loan from the IMF during the pandemic that could have saved lives. So. I've always been struck by this contradiction that I think you're absolutely right that SDRs are an important opportunity for the South, but how do we how do we square that circle of the contradiction where it's also in, with such a thoroughly flawed institution? You yourself have been a leading critic of the IMF. I'm just curious what you think about the the contradiction there of the importance of SDRs, but the problem of the IMF. Right. So. Uh... We don't have to uh, uh, compare the SDRs to perfection because uh, perfection doesn't exist and is not around. Uh, so we have to compare SDRs to other existing mechanisms. And other existing mechanisms that we have right now in the system are the 
hegemonic neocolonial uh, swap arrangement from the Federal Reserve, where the United States grants literally an unlimited dollar account to five other central banks, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of Canada, and uh, the Swiss National Bank, right? So these six, the six central banks, the, the US Fed plus these five others, have literally unlimited dollar accounts at the Fed, right? Now, that is definitely an advantage that these uh, partners uh, of, of the US have, uh, but uh, Global South countries don't, right? What do have the Global South countries uh, have? Well, they don't have these unlimited dollar accounts, so what they can do is, you know, try to knock some doors and maybe get a loan from somebody. Uh, and you know what those loans mean? They mean conditionality, they mean austerity, they mean firing people, they mean privatizing state taxes, they mean de deregulating the financial system and so on and creating crisis. So those aren't really a, a true alternatives for people that are actually concerned with the human rights and the well-being of people in the global south. So the next best thing that we have are the SDR that yes, have to follow the conventional voting structure at the IMF. They require US consent, but once that happens, they are distributed fairly equitably uh, to every country in, in the world. They are skewed towards richer countries, but uh, richer countries are not making any use of them anyway. So what you really have to count is how much arrives to the global south countries. And I've done several studies to show that it's global south countries that are the ones taking advantage of the SDRs and that we need more SDRs, we need more of these SDRs for several reasons, most specifically because they benefit you know, the, 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 the fiscal budget, the budget of these countries that allows them to you know, invest in their economies and, and save lives and help people very concretely, uh, but also because it creates an alternative to the, to the hegemonic system. Uh, so I think uh, uh, in that sense, uh, SDRs are, are a very powerful instrument. Again, they are not perfect. I hope one day we can reform the IMF governance and so on. But in the meantime, SDRs are a, a viable alternative that can happen. And as happened uh, during my campaign in 2021, uh, when I said, you know, that I would uh, uh, help people in the pandemic by giving, you know, a thousand dollars to uh, uh, each of the one million families that were in the most vulnerable condition in my country. And they said, well, where was the money going to come from? I said, well, from the SDRs, it's uh, issued out of thin air. And people that didn't know how money works uh, sort of made fun of that because they don't know how it works. But SDRs are issued out of thin air. They are politically created. The, you know, the countries literally meet, in this case by email, and they vote on creating new money. New money uh, that is a hard currency that can be issued uh, to every country in the world that's an IMF member country. And then, then that can be swapped, traded for dollars, euros, uh, yuan, yen, or, or the British pound, and they can be used for concrete day-to-day -day operations and purchases uh, in the international market. So um, it's a concrete uh, benefit to Global South countries, and uh, yeah, we have to overcome the, the governance dynamics of the IMF, but in the meantime, it's the most concrete, most tangible 
most uh, equitable uh, debt-free solution for uh, getting liquidity, getting money to the poorest countries in the world. Yeah, very well said. I have one final economics question, and then we can conclude talking about the politics in Ecuador briefly. But um, you've also been a promoter of central bank digital currencies. I'm wondering if you can talk about this. This has become a very hot topic in the financial press. And something that's also related, we saw that Argentina and China just signed a currency swap line agreement. And, and the Chinese media discussed this as a way of encouraging bilateral trade between Argentina and China using their domestic currencies. But also, it, it's clearly a way to provide liquidity for Argentina, which is facing this inflation crisis. So it, Argentina can serve its dollar-denominated debt while also having you know, these, these Chinese yuan. I'm curious if you think that currency swap, we've seen China has, the Chinese central bank has really expanded its use of currency swap lines with countries that are suffering with dollar denominated debt, like uh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Argentina. I'm curious what you think about that in the future. It's people have argued this is basically a way of, you know, providing loans that get around the SWIFT system and around sanctions. Um, so this is, these are both examples, CB, uh, uh, central bank digital currencies and currency swap lines of ways for central banks to kind of get, uh, oversee alternative payment mechanisms or alternative, lo alternative loan mechanisms. I'm curious what you think about both of those. Well, swap lines are uh, loans, they're mutual loans uh, between central banks, right? So uh, one central bank lends some of its own currency to another country and gets a loan in, in return. Uh, usually, it's uh, a country with a harder currency uh, that is actually the one that's lending the currency to that other country uh, with the weaker currency, right? Usually, there's a symmetry. There's a difference in, in sort of relative hierarchy of currencies between the countries that are engaged in swap arrangements. And I think they are a valid alternative. Again, this is part of this productive incoherence, part of this, uh, you know, many, many initiatives that are have sprawled, especially after the great financial crisis of 2008, uh, where, you know, countries start to be creative about, you know, how, how we can get our hands on liquidity without having to recur to uh, the IMF and, and to get a loan and, you know, go through this whole conditionality stuff. So uh, there have many, many of these uh, initiatives uh, have sprawled. We also have the Arab countries uh, developing swap networks, also Arab Monetary Fund and so on. We have a Latin American Reserve Fund. We wanted to have a, a fund of the South in, in our region. Unfortunately, that did not go through. Um, but uh, again, there, there are many uh, other initiatives and I think swap lines are, are, are an important one as well. Now, central bank digital currencies are a bit, a bit different. They are mostly designed for domestic payment uh, purposes that uh, basically people, businesses, but also directly human beings can have a type of account or a wallet uh, uh, with the or at the central bank, uh, and and that has many other implications. You know, implications as to how that will compete with the conventional banking system, with the cash, and so on. And, and I think we can have basically uh, two two main ideas here. One, I think that any successful CBDC, because we, we were the first country in the world, Ecuador, to to uh, do a pilot uh, to actually launch 
um, and have a CBDC fully operational uh, is that uh, it has to be uh, mindful of true financial inclusion. So you don't really have to target the people who already have a conventional banking account, right? You want to try to reach the people that do not have financial services, uh, that may have a phone, may have a you know a data connection, or not even just a phone connection, but it is it is that sector that that you want to reach. And then the other one, it is that you have to keep in mind that you are legal tender. If you want to uh, have a CBDC, it has to be as good as legal tender. And legal tender, the physical currency, has some protections to the consumer with regards to the anonymity, privacy, uh, and uh, non-traceability of its use. Uh, so uh, legal tender is, is not just a thing that forces you know uh, businesses to accept uh, your your currency. It is also a, a thing that protects uh, the user of, of cash by granting them that uh, a possibility of uh, of deciding to do with their with their money uh, whatever they they need to do with it, right? Without uh, you know supervision by anybody else. Uh, much less so a, a, a bank. So the digital currency, central bank digital currency, least successful has to replicate those characteristics that are present in physical cash in the digital version. And I think most central banks have not understood this and they are trying to, uh, you know, basically create accounts in the more conventional sense. And they're really excited about the surveillance possibilities that now they will have over a society by controlling every single transaction that they make and so on, they're not getting the point that adoption will only be there if they replicate the uh, characteristics of physical cash. Yeah, very well said. Again, it's it's extremely refreshing hearing a uh, prominent politician who could one day, you know, be a president uh, discussing such innovative ideas. And and that's this leads me to my last question or two here as we wrap up, and that's the discussion of the politics in your home country in Ecuador. I mentioned at the beginning that Andres was the former central bank um, manager in Ecuador. He also was minister of knowledge and human talent. But in 2021, he was presidential candidate. Andres won the first round and came close to winning the second. He lost by several points to the current right-wing millionaire banker president, Guillermo Lasso. But in regional elections that were just held, the leftist Correista movement did very well, winning more than any other party. And um, and here's uh, actually from former president Rafael Correa um, thanking his country. And, and you can see the results of the um, Citizens Revolution movement that was founded by Correa. Got 61 mayor's seats and nine, nine kind of governorships, basically, is the equivalent and that's more than any other party. And also, especially in the big cities of Quito and Guayaquil. But also something that was very important is that the president, Guillermo Lasso, had been trying to propose a referendum to change the constitution. And we know that he lost every single measure. He had eight different proposals to change the constitution. And in response to that, there were reports that Lasso actually was calling the leader of the electoral council and yelling at them and threatening 
the, the members of the Electoral Council. And this has led to people, including people who previously supported Lasso, to suggest that that would be an impeachable offense in Ecuador. So, um, Andres, can you reflect on this historic victory of the Correista uh, Citizens Revolution movement that you are a leader in, in these historic elections and the failure of Lasso in his constitutional referendum? What does this mean for Ecuador? I mean, these are great news for our country. It was a historic victory uh, after uh, you know years of political persecution. My campaign was extremely difficult in, in its conditions. We had you know all the referees against us. Uh, I had to run a campaign where I was constantly under death threats and threats of imprisonment, and you know the the incumbent government was a traitor who had already put many of my uh, uh, comrades in, in prison and so on. So it was it was under very difficult conditions, and uh, 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 we we lost by a, a very slim margin in the in the second round. Um, but uh, in this case, uh, the we have one main lesson that unfortunately was learned by the population the hard way, which is that uh, you know the in, in last campaign we did suffer a bit of punishment from the electorate because we had previously supported Lenin Moreno. And they said, well, yeah, whatever. I don't care that he's a traitor. He's part of your camp. And we're going to punish you for having selected him in the past. But now that Lasso has been in power for almost two years and has governed you know, exactly the same way with the same policies as Lenin Moreno, people have understood that it was really a, a massive act of betrayal and that uh, it was the right wing that was governing all this time, especially after Lasso decided not to uh, you know, investigate Moreno or to try to uh, uh, you know, get him uh, into any serious trouble. So uh, people have noticed that it has been Lasso and the right wing that has been actually governing uh, all these uh, last five, five, six years. So um, that has been a key difference in the, in the structure of the vote. And of course, uh, we have sort of amended our relationship with the people and that gave us a, a huge victory uh, in, in this, these last elections. You know, we won all major cities, all of the major prefectures and uh, you know, our demographic weight has, has gone up tremendously. And of course that gives us a lot of uh, possibilities for a subsequent uh, a presidential campaign in, in the future. Now, uh, in the case of Lasso, his defeat was complete, not only because the Citizens' Revolution won some of these key races, but uh, because he lost the, the referendum in each of the eight proposals he made, and that was a, a resounding victory of, of the people. The margin of that victory was much larger than the people who voted for us, so that means that uh, there is uh, a, a critical majority that is not just voting for the citizens' revolution, but for a larger anti-right-wing type uh, coalition, and, and that is our challenge now. How we can build a relationship within that coalition of not just coexistence, but also amending those, those links so we can go together and, and have a resounding victory in, in the next... Uh, uh, electoral cycle now uh, for lasso this has been total collapse uh, you know it has basically no uh, support within the parliament no support with, uh, 
you know, with, with people, uh, electoral defeats, uh, people, all his uh, uh, most trusted elements have, have quit. Uh, and, and now he has to basically uh, survive and, and probably he won't make it uh, in, in the next few days or weeks. So we'll probably have some news uh, coming from Ecuador fairly quickly. Yeah, that would be incredible. Um, and that's the positive news. I, I want to conclude, unfortunately, on a, I guess, a more tragic note, which is the social cost of the Lasso government. We saw that under President Rafael Correa and the Citizens' Revolution, there was a massive decrease in violence and organized crime in Ecuador. This is a graph showing the death rate, violent death rate in Ecuador. And when when Correa came in, there was just it just plummeted the death rate in Ecuador. And ever since the return to the right by Lenin Moreno and now Lasso, we've seen a massive increase in violence. And there have been so many horrible reports that I've seen of reports of mass killings in prisons and drug violence. And in fact, before the elections, there was a prominent Correista leftist um, candidate who was assassinated before the election. So I'm wondering if you can reflect on the social cost of the Lasso government thus far and why you think that there's been such a massive increase in violence and in uh, drug trafficking in Ecuador under Lasso. Unfortunately, uh, this violence that we've seen in Ecuador is, and it really saddens me to say this, but it's part of a plan. It's part of Lasso's plan to weaken the social organization capacity, to instill a fear in population, and to demobilize people and to remove hope from them. We have seen, in parallel to this violence, uh, we have seen the largest uh, uh, migration wave out of Ecuador. And that's comparable to the largest migration waves that we've seen from other countries, but without an embargo and blockade of financial or economic sanctions against Ecuador, this is basically the collapse of Ecuadorian society uh, from uh, the fact that last policies have decided to destroy our domestic economy, the relationship between the productive sectors and society and so on. And unfortunately, it seems that it has been part of a plan to create this uh, sort of uh, fear, this uh, element of, of fear in society for him to uh, implement his neoliberal policies in a much easier way or a much uh, uh, easier fashion. So now um, how the evidence that points to this is the fact that the, the Minister of Security uh, for over a year was Alexandra Vela, who has said continuously that she's not an expert in security, that is not her forte, that is not what she's good at. And she was still kept as the Minister of Security for a long time, and not only to be replaced by uh, Diego Ordonez, who's this other guy who has no experience whatsoever in matters of security. His only expertise is sort of libertarian uh, political persecution against the left in America and, uh, and that's that's all the, the baggage he has you know he has no expertise in security matters whatsoever so uh, these are the people that are running our security forces these are the bosses of the police and the armed forces in Ecuador and of course uh, that, that that can only make sense if the plan was to not do anything about violence now the the good news is that as soon as a progressive government takes power in Ecuador, uh, the, the progressive government will have a lot of legitimacy 
it will have a lot of trust from the people. And as we have demonstrated in the past with the leadership of Rafael Correa, there will be immediate action because we know how to get things done. We've done it in the past. We reduced, like you showed, the homicide rate in, in a very short amount of time. So um, uh, we know how to do that by managing the local police force, by being you know, very meticulous about studying the cause, causes of crime, the geography of crime, and so on. So uh, uh, the good news for the people of Ecuador is that as soon as we have a progressive government in place, uh, those indicators will improve tremendously, quickly, and uh, with immediate benefit for the families of the Ecuadorian citizens. Very well said. Um, I guess just to not end on the on a super dark note, I'll, I'll, I will say I'll ask one final question, and then I know you're a busy man, and I'll let you go. Um, there's been a lot of discussion of the return of the so-called pink tide. I know in in my experience in the region, people don't really use the term pink tide, but a progressive wave, a left-wing wave of governments across the region. Um, in fact, for the first time in modern history, the six most populous governments in the region were left-wing until the, the coup in Peru in December. But, I mean, we see for the first time ever a left-wing government in Colombia. We see for the first time in many decades a left-wing government in Mexico. And, of course, Lula has now returned in Brazil. Unfortunately, the only, the only uh, holdouts, the right-wing holdouts, are Ecuador and Uruguay. And I guess you could say Guatemala and, well, El Salvador is complicated. But the point is that Ecuador is definitely, I think, probably next in line for the left-wing to come back. The last question that we can end on is, what do you see in the, in the short to the medium term, maybe even the long term, for the, the future of Latin America, and especially with the left being able to govern, do you think that you'll be able to continue the process of regional integration and turn you know, Latin America and the Caribbean into a, I would say a pole in a multipolar world that I, I increasingly think that might be the case, but I'm curious what your final thoughts are. Yeah, we need, we need to, to have uh, some uh, key conversations in the region uh, among the largest uh, players, you know, I'm talking about Lula, talking about AMLO, talking about uh, Fernandez, Petro. Uh, you know, I think if, if we could get these uh, the four presidents together on the table, you know, have <laughs> uh, off the record conversations, maybe sit down for an entire day and have them uh, uh, come up with some some key ideas uh, is it's very important we need that kind of conversation right now you know uh this this cannot just be you know some random ideas floating around and then making some uh you know headlines in the papers but then not being implemented in reality we need to to have a true uh, political consensus among the progressive governments a serious conversation uh, because you know, to overcome uh, issues about egos and vanity and, and stuff like that. And, and we need to understand that this is a historic moment for humanity and that uh, uh, Latin American people uh, have a duty uh, to their, their uh, continent, of course, but also to, to the rest of the world. We have to show that there is uh, an alternative and we are in the conditions to prove that. So we, we really need to, to make that happen. And, and then, you know, after the conversation of the presidents, we need to go beyond 
the political integration of political parties or you know chiefs of states or whatever the summit pictures we need to have an integrations of the peoples and this is important ben and i mentioned this already but i want to say it again uh, we need to make regional integration tangible for the people the everyday citizen right we need to make this concrete we need to make this you know feel in, in, in their bodies in their minds in their day-to-day -day. and this is done with the educational exchange program we need a cultural program where we have you know small kids in elementary schools discussing what should the flag of latin america be like what should the anthem be like with the music musicians poets of each of our countries we need to discuss you know how the coat of arms sh uh, should be uh, what kinds of symbols do we want to uh, adopt as a latin american uh, civilization uh, and and these are the discussions that will you know make so many other things happen especially if we start with that with the younger kids in, in our generation we also need to have these infrastructure immediately you know we have you know almost a trillion dollars in reserves being deposited in swiss and u.s bank accounts um if you if you are up you know south american and mexico and central american reserves and we have money deposited in, in the global north but we should invest at least a tenth of that in our own region in concrete assets in roads in electric interconnection system in the rail network to connect the, the big cities of latin america amongst ourselves and, and we need to make that happen quickly uh, otherwise we'll lose this opportunity so uh, my my call is to you know, have a little wake up call and get, you know, our, our regional movements uh, going and pressure the, the government to go forward much faster in terms of regional integration. Uh, not every country can save itself, right? We cannot be facing this geopolitical moment, this basically world war as 33 independent small republics. This has to be faced as a Latin American bloc and the political conditions are there. I just hope that uh, we can get the uh, structures, the instruments in place for uh, the regional bloc to actually assert itself and uh, start projecting and acting in real life. Wow, those are powerful words to end on. Um, I must say that I hope that today I was speaking with the next president of Ecuador, I think, uh, a president of any country that, that could implement those kinds of ideas, or at least try to implement those ideas, I think would be such a positive force for the entire world. Um, Andres Arauz was the central bank director in Ecuador, and under former President Correa, he was also Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent. He's finishing up, I believe you're finishing up your PhD in economics, right? And um, you, everyone should check out Andres Arauz over at his Twitter account. You can follow him at ECU Arauz. And I know that, um, Andres, you're also a fellow at the um, Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR, in Washington, D.C., which is, I often joke, it's the only good think tank in Washington. They do a lot of very important work over there. Is there anything else that you would like to plug at the end here that where people could find your work or, or follow what you do? Yeah, I'm just waiting for the slow uh, university bureaucracy to print my little diploma and I'm, I'll be ready with, with that. But yeah, I finished my, my degree in mid last year and uh, happy to, to have that uh, done. 
so yeah, uh, thanks again, uh, Ben, for, for everything. And uh, uh, yeah, thanks for this interview. I hope uh, we've clarified some of these issues for, for your wide audience. You absolutely did. And I hope you inspire people to do more research into these very fascinating topics. I think we're living in a, in a deeply important watershed moment in history. And I, I do think Latin America plays a key role in that, especially with very brilliant political leaders and economists like you and others. So thanks so much for being generous with your time today. Thank you, Ben. Bye-bye.